Unity is a part of our relationship with Christ. When we were born again, we were united with him, placed in the body. And, and he's saying, don't mess up the unity that's been given to you. You maintain it. You don't create it. It's already there. Welcome to Living a Legacy, featuring the Bible teaching ministry of Crawford Loritz. If you're new to our program, our teacher has been in Christian ministry for over 50 years, serving as a pastor, conference speaker, seminary professor, and author. His books include Your Marriage, Today and Tomorrow, Unshaken, and Leadership as an Identity. The messages we feature on Living a Legacy come from Crawford's 15 years as pastor of Fellowship Bible Church of Roswell, Georgia. Today, Crawford leads the Christian mentoring ministry known as Beyond Our Generation. Unity in the body of Christ. We're learning just how important that is. The unity we display as believers can have a huge impact on those who are seeking the Savior. Discord becomes a distraction. So how can we better nurture unity among ourselves? That's the focus in the second half of Crawford's message titled Unity. It's part of his new series, Big Rocks. Our text is John chapter 17. Here's Crawford Loretz on Living a Legacy. Verse 23. I in them and you and me that they may become perfectly one. Now notice a purpose clause here. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What is this predicated on? What is this predicated? The world knows because we are unified. It compels a watching world to believe. And I think there's a warning here. Hear me on this. Don't let any issue obscure the beauty and wonder of our Savior. This is what the world needs. Jesus had said this before in John 13. We quote it so often. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one toward another. Yeah, it's good to be able to give the cogent arguments for the existence of God and, and, and all of these things. It's, it's, it's good to have crisp, wonderful theology and great, accurate doctrine and to be filled with this great. And we teach all of that here, and I'm not putting that stuff down. But let me tell you something. You can be right in your theology. You can be cogent in your arguments. You can be crisp about your analysis, transcendently correct about your insights, and still discredit the cause of Christ because of broken relationships in the body, the refusal to be reconciled with one another, leading with your issues, impregnating your opinions, and here Jesus says, what is most attractive to the world is the reality of your transformation and the power of God that causes people who should not get along together to love each other. And that's what's missing in this whole cancel culture. And let's, let's be honest, it ain't just a cancel culture out there. It's a cancel culture among Christians. I believe that this unity reflects and represents our destiny. Verse 24, Jesus is praying. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory 
that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, I drop this in context. The context here, he's talking about unity. But, but what he's saying is that, look, look, <laughs> this unity in union is permanent. It's not utilitarian. It is permanent. It is permanent. And that one day, <laughs> we're going to be in his presence, and we will see the full revelation of the glory of our Savior. That's unity's payoff. And the payoff is the motivation to pursue it down here. You've heard me say this over these 15 years time and time again. I, and, I, and, you know, and, I, and I'm guilty of this myself. One of the things that I do not like about a good deal of the preaching that I hear today, I mean, it's good stuff, but it's too transactional. What do I mean by that? You know, the, the, the absence of the eternal in our messages. The dominant motivation in the Christian life for living the Christian life in the New Testament has to do with eternity, has to do with eternal uh, um, uh, rewards. It has to do, that's the reason why we're living. And, and, and most of the messages that we hear, you don't hear much of eternity. You don't hear the shadows of eternity around it. You hear good transactional stuff, how to do this, how to solve this, how to be overcome this, or how to, you know, and I don't get me wrong. I, I, I don't want to be too critical there because that, that's important. But what Jesus is praying is that I want my followers who are unified to step into the presence of the Father and to see the full revelation of our love for one another. And that's unity's payoff. Now, unity is what Jesus prayed for. But secondly, unity is what we must pursue. The pursuit of unity is not a suggestion in the Old Testament. It is a command. Over here in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, this, this, I love this text, verses 1 through 6. Um, in verses 1 through 3, we see this foundation for our unity. And then verses 4 through 6, we see the focus of our unity. Now, not, not to be too granular here, verses 1 through 3 in this foundation, in typical Pauline fashion, often he gives us the environment in which a command needs to take place. And that's what he's doing in verses 1 through 3. He's giving us an environment, particularly verses 1 and 2, he's giving us an environment by and through which this unity will be maximized. And apart from these environmental concerns, unity, the pursuit of unity, would nothing, be nothing more than a legalistic exercise. Uh, you'll see this as we go through this. Verse, verse 1 is there as an approach. Verse 2 is a posture, and verse 3 is the objective. First, the approach. Verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, this is some heavy-duty stuff here. You might just read over this thing. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I want to point out a few things. Number one, the word walk. 
The word walk there is a Greek term, peripateo. It means to tread or trample about. He's talking about the daily concourse of life. And, the, and your daily life, how should you walk in your daily life? How should you live in your daily life? On your job, in your room, on the Zoom meeting, interacting with people, wherever you might be, how should you walk in, in your daily life? He said, in a manner worthy of a calling to which you have been called. Again, hang in there with me. The Greek word worthy means of equal weight. Now, this is extraordinary. Equal weight of what? Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Notice how he, he's calling us up. What have you been called to? You've been placed in the body of Christ. Crawford, Jesus paid in a very expensive price for you. You have been redeemed. You've been reconciled. He unpacks this actually over in Ephesians chapter 1 when he talks about all of the blessings and favor that we have now that we are in Christ, our position in him. We are complete in him. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That's our calling. Now he says, <laughs> you make sure that your life reflects the weight of that calling. You don't live your Christian life based on your opinions, Crawford. You don't live your Christian life based upon your preferences. You don't a la carte and pick and choose. No, there's a plumb line. There's accountability. There's responsibility. You've been called to this, so walk like this. That's the approach. Now, I know that that's heavy stuff, but too many Christians are trying to negotiate their preferences with God rather than obey what God has called us to be. Then secondly, there's this posture. Well, how do you walk this way? You can't walk this way being full of yourself. You can't walk this way by being arrogant. You can't walk this way by being hyper-opinionated. Well, here's the posture. <laughs> he says in verse 2, notice the preposition, with, with connected to the calling to walk this way. With. All humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Let me just say a few words about these words. Humility. Humility. Humility is dependence on God and an other's orientation. I don't have time to go through this, but one cannot be truly humble unless they're confident. What? No, that's true. I'm not playing with words here. I'm not playing with words. Insecure people are not technically humble. They are needy. Humble people have the confidence to understand that all they need is God and that they don't need to lead with themselves. They don't need to lead with selfish interests. They don't need to lead with preferences of this kind. Of, they are secure in their walk and relationship with God because they realize that God takes care of them. 
And so you have to have the confidence, God confidence, to be humble. He says, now you walk this way because you know God's going to take care of you. you. You're humble about it. You don't, have to, you don't have to suck all the air out of the room. You don't have to be proud and arrogant. You don't have to be beating people up. You don't have to display your insecurities. No, you're secure. You're okay. Secondly, the word uh, gentleness. I really believe that he's talking about kindness and empathy. You don't have to beat people up. By the way, to be gentle does not mean to be weak. It does not mean that you lack courage. It doesn't mean anything at all. It means that you're secure. You have to beat people up. You can be kind toward them. You can be hard on issues, but loving when it comes to people. You can separate those things. You don't have to be a part of this nasty cancel culture because somebody disagree with you, you've got to not only shoot down the argument, you've got to shoot the messenger too. Gentleness, kindness, empathy. Then he says patience. This patience. Well, <laughs> you look at the Bible. Sometimes you, yeah, the Bible sometimes will define what they mean. I think Paul defines what he means by patience. Notice the expression. He says, with patience... What do you mean by that? Well, bearing with one another in love. I think he defines it in the next clause. Bearing with one another in love. That's patience. Now, having said that, all of this atmospheric setup here, Crawford, you're going to be accountable here. You've got to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and of your calling here, okay? How do you do that with humility, gentleness, and patience? Now, here's a command. With all that setup. The Apostle Paul says in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, I need to tell you something. Don't, don't skip over that word eager. Eager, the word, trans the word translated eager, actually the Greek word, it literally means intense effort. Intense effort. That's what it means. Unity is not a casual thing is what Paul is saying here. No, you, you, you take intense effort to be unified. Notice he says maintain, maintain. You take intense effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. By the way, by the way, you know, Karen and I, uh, <laughs> we do some Q&A stuff now. Sometimes we speak at these marriage events. We just spoke at one the other day with some pastors and their wives in South Carolina. People think that, you know, they say, well, What's the secret to thriving? And Karen looks at me and says, I got to hear this. But uh, what's, <laughs> what's the secret to all of that? And we always disappoint them because they're, they're probably looking for some little, you know, shortcut kind of thing like that. It ain't no secret, man. A thriving marriage takes work. You confront your failures and your, you know, the gaps in your life and your shortcomings. Now, y'all don't have any of that, but you got to do all that stuff. You got to do that. And though when he says here, this is what he's saying by being eager. No, you got you to confront yourself. You got you to do all that stuff, man. You can't run from one another because they say something you don't like. What's that all about? You can't keep changing churches because they don't do something you don't want. What's that all about? By the way, he says maintain. You don't create unity, you maintain unity. 
Unity is a part of, of, of our relationship with Christ. When we were born again, we were united with him, placed in the body. And, and he's saying, don't mess up the unity that's been given to you. You maintain it. You don't create it. It's already there. But you've got to maintain it. Don't screw it up, is what Paul says. Now, the question is, how do we do this? <laughs> I love Paul. I love Paul. See, sometimes when you study the Bible, a lot of us, we pause too soon, and then we get brain cramps about what the passage means. Don't pause too soon. Just keep reading. You finish reading the context, it'll answer the question more often than not. Well, how do you do this? I want to suggest to you that Paul clearly tells you how to do this in verses 4 through 6. This is the focus. This is the focus. You see, he tells us that you maintain unity by focusing on common ground. That's how you maintain unity. Unity is maintained by the continual focus on common ground. Make sure that you don't make ancillary opinions and preferences and all of this other kind of stuff as a part of common ground. That's where the problem comes. A lot of us have stuff that we think is common ground that ain't got nothing to do with common ground. But here, our, Paul tells us in so many words that our unity is not based on sentimentality. It's not based upon an untethered love. But it's based on these seven basic spiritual realities. This is the common ground for unity. Now, uh, I'll read these words and say a few words about it, and we'll be done. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He articulates seven realities that, that this is our common ground. This is what our unity is based upon. The first thing he says, there's one body, meaning that there's only one church. You have only been called to one church, not, not, not as in Fellowship Bible Church, but as in the body of Christ. Jesus has no other entity. It's only one church. The second thing that he says here is that there's one spirit. I think the implication is this. Look, there's one spirit who indwells every single believer, every follower of Christ. And I think the inference is this. You have the power to be everything that God has called you to be. You have the power to do everything that God has called you to do. That's the work of the spirit of God. There is one spirit who changes all of us who develops all of us. Thirdly, one hope. This is our common ground. All of us as followers of Jesus Christ, this hope, this hope, this confidence is that we look forward to the return of Christ. We look forward to it. And he could come back before I finish this next sentence. We look forward to his coming, all of us together. This is our common ground. This is what brings us together. We aspire to see him and to be with him. Number four, he says, there's one Lord, meaning there's no other Savior. There's no other Savior. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Peter would later on say, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name 
under heaven given among them whereby we must be saved. Paul would describe it again that there's going to come a time in history where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There's only one Lord. There's only one captain of this ship. He's the head of this body. Nobody else. That's our common ground. He says that uh, there's one faith. What does he mean by this? If you heard me last week, I, I explained by this. So it's often when the Bible talks about faith, it's not talking about uh, purely the ability to believe. It's also referring to the body of truth. One faith, and what he's talking about is this. There's only one, one revelation from God. No other revelation that you will get, no other insight that you will get is equal to the revelation that's been given. There is one faith, and every believer operates, true believer, embraces the truth of this book. They live by it, they love it, they apply it, their lives are governed by it. That's our common ground. Then he says that there is one baptism. I don't take this to be water baptism. I really believe that Paul is talking about uh, the baptism of the Spirit. In fact, in fact, he's referring to the baptism that causes us to be introduced or enter into the body of Christ. That's given over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Interestingly enough, that's another passage that deals with unity. In that passage, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. He's talking about the unity of the body of Christ, that we are his body. And thus he says in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12, for by one Spirit have we all been baptized into the body of Christ. You've been placed into this body, and it's permanent. The Spirit placed you into the body. You didn't feel it, but at the moment of salvation, you're regenerated, indwelled, and baptized, and sealed by the Spirit of God. You're, 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 you're a member of this body. And the seventh basic spiritual reality, which is our common ground, is that there's one God and Father. Notice God and Father. He puts that together. I think the implication is this, that we are children of the same God and we should live and act in unity with one another. Crawford Loretz, our speaker here on Living a Legacy. Unity, it's not a suggestion, it's a command, and it's a tremendous way to demonstrate the power of the gospel. You can hear today's message again on our website, livingalegacy.org, livingalegacy.org. Many of Crawford's messages are also available to download for free. Look for the MP3 link on the website. Thanks for getting in touch with us. It's encouraging to know Crawford's teaching is being used by God to help you take next steps in your walk with Christ. Here's a recent email from Dorothy. I needed to write a note to say how much I love listening to the preaching style of Dr. Loretz. His messages are biblical, dynamic, relevant, and practical, and most importantly, life-changing. I listen with a pen and notebook ready. Crawford makes you feel as if you're on the front pew. The topic on discipleship was inspiring. I'm an online host community leader helping to mentor the women of iCampus at First Baptist Dallas. Please keep me in prayer as I take a bold step and in God's strength help meet the needs of our online community. 
Thank you so much, Dorothy, and we will pray that God uses you mightily in this online ministry. Now, would you take a moment to email us to write to legacy at moody.edu, legacy at moody.edu. Thank you so much. Next week, how the Holy Spirit gives us power for living. For Crawford Loritz, I'm Bill Davis. This program is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.